0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where it is St. Patrick's Day. So for all of you who have an Irish heritage or embrace the great Irish heritage that is part of the fabric of America, happy St. Patrick's Day from Just the News, from John Solomon Reports. I know I'm going to have some corned beef and cabbage when I get home tonight, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, So have a Guinness, have a moment today to celebrate this incredible holiday, as we often do. All right, folks, we've got a great show today and some of it triggers off a remarkable moment in the media space last night where the New York Times suddenly appeared to have discovered that the Hunter Biden laptop left at John Paul McIsaac's Delaware shop that's been in the FBI's custody since December of 2019. Well, that is authentic. It isn't Russian disinformation like all those national security analysts falsely claimed. And they realize now that it shows that Hunter Biden has some serious legal trouble going on. That is an amazing moment. It only took them two and a half years. Remember this country was deprived of that information for a period of time uh, by censors at Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I wanna point out that when I started reporting on the very things that the laptop would eventually show, the relationship of Hunter Biden in Ukraine, the possibility he had a tax problem, Kate Bedingfeld put out a letter calling me a conspiracy theorist. Kate Bedingfeld was like the communications director. She was at the top of the Joe Biden campaign. In the fall of 19, they called me a conspiracy theorist. I turned out to be the right one. The real conspiracy theory was that there was nothing wrong with what Hunter Biden did. That has been proven wrong. He's got a tax problem. He may have a foreign lobbying problem. The State Department just turned over documents to us three years, belated Showing that the State Department believed Hunter Biden undercut uh, U.S. Ukraine anti corruption efforts. So he did have an impact on U.S. policy. All of that now out in the open. And the New York Times had like a V8 moment. Oh my God, it's all true. Sorry, we're going to tell you it's true now and pretend we didn't try to suppress it. Great moment for the truth, bad moment for the New York Times. Well, our first guest tonight knows a little bit about censorship and being impugned over the Hunter Biden laptop. He is that Delaware computer repair shop owner, John Paul McIsaac, whose life was turned upside down by the vicious, vitriolic, hateful attacks. People calling him a Russian propagandist, a fraud. Uh, None of it was true. All he did was his civic duty to turn over a piece of evidence that now has become very important to the FBI. John Paul McIsaac here to react to the New York Times having its VA moment. Oh my God, the laptop really was true after all. What a great moment to have. I'm really looking forward to him. Check out that story in my tweet from last night about that. And then uh, our second guest is Dr. Peter Brooks, former Navy commander, current fellow at the Heritage Foundation, an expert on nuclear and biological weapons, Uh, has a lot to say about both could happen with a tactical nuclear weapon deployment by Russia during the Ukraine war. And uh, China's rather quiet, but very troubling expansion of its uh, strategic nuclear weapons, those designed to create intercontinental warfare in nuclear sense. We're gonna tackle both of those with Dr. Peter Brooks. That's an exciting conversation as well. All right, folks, no reason to delay. We're gonna take a quick commercial break when we come back. John Paul McIsaac, the man who changed history by turning over hunter biden's laptop to the fbi right after this commercial break hey folks have you heard of cancer fighting foods the american cancer society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer think about that for a second that's really important hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Our next guest, I can say this authentically and from the heart, our next guest literally changed the course of history. He made a decision as a laptop repair shop owner that a piece of evidence that had been left behind in his shop by Hunter Biden might need to be brought to the FBI. He did so. It helped contribute to a massive criminal case against Hunter Biden. And for that, he was bullied and uh, maligned and uh, and called a Russian disinformation specialist, Only to today, wake up this morning and discover that the New York Times finally realized that everything on that laptop was true. Joining me right now is that former Delaware computer shop owner, John Paul McIsaac. John Paul, great to have you on. Happy St. Patrick's Day.
1: Yeah, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Thanks, John, for having me back on the show.
0: Well, it's an honor. Your story is so compelling because you were a target of cancel culture, not because you did a thing wrong, but because you did the right thing. You had this laptop hunter biden leaves it on his uh leaves it behind you start to look at it when you legally have the right to do so you realize it as evidence of criminality you bring it to the fbi and for that you got two and a half years of aggravation in the court of public opinion so when you wake up this morning and you see the new york times treating the laptop contents now suddenly as legitimate not russian disinformation what was your reaction
1: well i kind of laughed um I I remember on October 15th, 2020, uh, the day after the New York Post uh, broke the story, and uh, after my humiliating experience with dealing with the press for the first time uh, on the 14th, I was a little bit more prepared, but I I was coming back from my lunch break, and there were three reporters out in front of my shop. One was from uh, CNN, the other one was from the Washington Post, and the third was from the New York Times. And I felt I had a little bit more confidence in dealing with the press at that time, so I actually took a a couple minutes before I entered the shop to actually speak with them. And I I felt like I wanted to convey to them why I did what I did. So I, I went into not enough detail, but that I was comfortable with. But I explained my story. And I also figured, especially after witnessing the complete and utter blackout on social and mainstream media the day yeah. before, that they were probably never going to publish anything that I was saying. So I felt like I'd indulge myself and, and uh, remind them that it, as journalists, they have a responsibility to tell the truth. And if they maybe focus a little bit more on the issues that kind of we all have in common on both sides of the aisle, maybe their readers will treat them seriously and maybe they'll do more good than harm. But I I figured they weren't going to publish any of that anyway. So trust me, when I woke up this morning, I kind of got a chuckle because I was like, oh, a day late and dollar short, aren't they?
0: <laughs> day late and a dollar short. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. it. It is an amazing thing because I started reporting on this about six, eight months before you, you brought the laptop to the FBI. And um, and then I got whacked up as a conspiracy theorist. Kate Bedingfeld at the uh campaign. Wrote a letter calling me a conspiracy theorist. I'd like to see how well that claim aged. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Jane Mayer at uh, at the New Yorker magazine dirtied up these allegations. But when you walk in with that laptop, you end up providing to the FBI some of the most important substantiating evidence uh, of the cash bank that um, Ukraine and Russia had become to the Biden family. Of course, we also know it was to the Clinton family. We know Bill Clinton got money and Hillary Clinton and the foundation. Um, but that that uh, laptop literally changes the course of history because on it you see warnings from his lawyers that he had Hunter Biden had failed to pay taxes, um, warnings that. Um, uh, they were trying to avoid registering as fara they were concocting a scheme to avoid uh, having to uh, register as fara Those are now at the center of the criminal investigation, if you believe this morning's New York Times uh, article, and I do because that's what I've been told. Um, remind people why you you gave that laptop, and you didn't do it for a partisan reason, right? You and your dad no. had looked at it and you thought you saw something criminal on there and it needed to be reported,
1: right? Well, absolutely. The A lot of people forget that Joe Biden hadn't formally announced his candidacy until after Hunter had dropped off the laptop. So my fear started to rise because I had already seen during the course of the actual transferring of the data, I saw a lot of incriminating evidence and I felt that there had to be somebody on a secret service staff that was going to knock on my door and ask me for this equipment back. The problem is, is there's a signed document that said I was allowed to go through it and that that was my initial fear is that there was going to be some repercussions. I mean, I've read stuff on this laptop where Hunter has made some serious requests to have people dealt with in a certain way. So I I did not doubt in my mind that I needed the FBI's assistance, not just to get this suspected criminal uh, material to the proper authorities, but also to give me some level of protection in case somebody comes looking for this. And when the FBI took possession of the laptop in December 2019, I, I pretty much, you know, realized that their their interests weren't in protecting me; that they were more interested in protecting the laptop. So that's Amazing. that's when we upped the ante and went to Congress uh, to try to get people's attention there, and ultimately it led to me reaching out to uh, Rudy Giuliani's office. Yeah, yeah,
0: what a what a remarkable moment in history, and now. You know, we see these very serious allegations, which, by the way, had been under investigation since late 2018. There were uh, the FBI was approached from multiple sources in that time frame. One was the investment banks that were uh, handling some of Hunter Biden and Devin Archer's business dealings. They had filed suspicious activity reports. So we know that happened. Right. Uh, Then we know that uh, some of the Ukrainian prosecutors reached out through a former U.S. attorney and reported that they had suspicions that Hunter Biden might have a tax problem with what he did in Ukraine. And then your laptop comes in and it brings in the largest pile of evidence to substantiate what those earlier concerns were. And literally, when I say you changed the course of history, uh, John Paul, you did. That laptop not only became something important in the court of public opinion, even after the censorship, it's clearly had a very important role in the ongoing criminal investigation that has gone on. And so as you look back now, you have paid a dear price for this, right? I mean, you had to close your shop in Delaware. What has life been like for you uh, after you did, you know, what what any citizen should do when you find evidence of wrongdoing, bring it to authorities?
1: Well, as you said, I I had to close my shop As a safety precaution, I left town and I stayed with some relatives out in Colorado for a better part of a year. Uh, obviously, when Twitter took a turn for the worse, I had to come back to Delaware because if, if, if bankruptcy is something that I have to face, I, I don't want to lose my house in that process. So right. uh, I'm back in Delaware. I really don't go out too much. Uh, I, I actually thank COVID for the fact that now everybody delivers everything you could ever possibly need. So. There's no real reason to leave the house. Um, yeah, it, it's, I'm visually impaired. So if somebody wants to do me harm, I'm never going to see it happen. And that's that's my fear. I'm not necessarily worried about a retaliation from a particular group of people or an right. agency. They're, they've been poking me with a stick with through unemployment, uh, denial of unemployment, or even the, the IRS poking me with a stick for eighty seven or $57. Um, I don't think anybody's going to come after me, but I am worried about Especially with the heightened concern of Russia and Ukraine, uh, and the rekindling of the notion that I uh, stewed for Putin, that, that that does have me a little worried. So, uh, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I, I I stay inside a lot.
0: Given all that you've gone through—the bankruptcy, the constant media uh, attacks, the being called a Russian disinformation specialist when you were nothing of the sort—would uh, you do the same thing again if if, if you had hindsight? would you still have gone to the FBI and reported this wrongdoing?
1: I think I would have. Uh, it's, it's a tricky one because, you know, I grew up in a military family yes. and I was taught to respect the chain of command. And I still believe in these systems that are in place. I still have faith in these systems because if you lose faith in the system, then it's, then it's over. So I would probably, the only thing I would have changed is I think I would have gone to the lawyer, the president of the United States, and the FBI at the same time.
0: Wow! Instead, so I don't you, want to rule You out, end up going to uh, Rudy Giuliani later. Is that correct? Or early? yeah, I,
1: I yeah, you know, uh, I went to Rudy. I mean, to be honest, Rudy was my backup plan. If the FBI went south and I ended up in a in a box somewhere, uh, I had a friend that was going to hand deliver a copy of the drive to Rudy Giuliani's office. And this was a decision I made back in September of 2019 because I still had, I didn't have a complete faith in the FBI. But I still felt like it was the proper thing to do. Uh, Turns out that very same drive would be sent to Rudy Giuliani's office less than a year later, uh, after I realized that the FBI wasn't going to submit that laptop as evidence during the impeachment trial. Yeah. Because there's no reason why this country should have had to endure a third impeachment. No, no.
0: Listen, it's uh, it's remarkable what it is. When you look at um, all of the financial activity, we, we're now in the midst of this extraordinary war of Russia attacking Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine were a giant piggy bank for not only um, Hunter Biden, but you know we know now that Clinton's and John Podesta's, one of the companies he invested in or was on the board of, got a large Russian investment. Um, when you look at what you got to read and saw, how concerning is it to know that two countries now at war used to be a cash register for a political party in this country?
1: Well, Joe Biden was made point man for the Ukraine back in 2014, and now he's point man again. And what, the IMF put together $18 billion last time in 2014, and how much have we put together? Uh, A billion in military aid and three in in, uh, humanitarian? So there's a lot of money, once again, pouring back into Ukraine. And I, I mean, I hate to say it, but once again, the Bidens are in the middle of it.
0: It is it is remarkable. And, and the only two invasions of Ukraine have happened on Joe Biden's watch in the last 25 years. It is just a, an incredible thing to absorb, you know, the, the consequences of it. And they got their millions out of it already, right? Hunter Biden made yeah. his money already. But um, yeah. the people of Igor Ukraine made are the price. Yeah. Um, what's next for you, John Paul, what do you do? How do you move to the next phase of your life? I think today is a moment, a tipping point where people really are going to appreciate, you know, it it, it was always never in doubt that what you did was honest and accurate, but when the New York Times has to come back and eat this much crow and acknowledge it, um, what can you do? What slingshot do you have to move on to the next phase of your life?
1: Well, I've been trying to tell my story through conventional and social media means for over a year now. Yeah. And uh, it's nice to finally get vindication from the very groups that tried desperately to repress the story. So sure. I'd, I'd like a formal apology, but that's ah, never going to happen. Right. So uh, it is, it is good. I still feel that I could do more to share with basically the other half of the country that, thinks I'm a Russian spy or or this whole thing's just a disinformation campaign to begin with. So uh, my I'm, my goal right now is to get a book published that documents and chronicles my entire adventure. And uh, I'm hoping that that'll happen soon. And then I'm hoping that, that I'll finally be able to have a, an opportunity to share my story, why I did what I did. And people will see that this wasn't about politics. This is no, a civic duty. This was something that we should all as Americans take the responsibility to make this country better. And when you see something wrong and horrible, you should report it immediately. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, a lot of people probably took from the initial way you were treated. I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to raise my head. It's not worth it. And yet here you are two years, three years later, having gone through all you are, all you did still saying I would have gone to the FBI because it was the right thing to do. That's what my patriotic, Uh, uh, duty was. And I think that that's inspiring to people that even after getting all the hard knocks that were imposed on you unfairly, you still have that patriotic instinct that doing the right thing is the most important thing to do. And I think that really stands out in this. Um, One last topic, because I think Mm -hmm. yours became one of the most extraordinary cases of the dangers of censorship. Twitter, Facebook, the blackout in the news media. Uh, the danger of of suppressing truth in America. What's your big picture taken on after being living through it yourself?
1: Well, you know, for for a group of people that want this country to turn socialist, um, I think that the rest of us aren't aware of how close we are. Uh, the realization that we operate with state run and media and state run social media it should scare the hell out of everyone. And that that was. That was my takeaways. We we think we have these freedoms because we can buy and sell their stock on on the stock exchange. But right. there there's a control that's we're not aware of that's influencing us, and that's dangerous. And yeah. that's that's propaganda. And there's no place in a free society for that.
0: You know, one of the interesting things is uh, it's often invisible how big tech can censor things. They can play with an algorithm without us seeing it they can mm-hmm. tinker and i think that getting transparency to how these big giant social engines suppressed your specific story i think will give us great learnings for the future um i suppose that's one area that when you get your chance to tell your story you'll be able to weigh in a lot more do you still use social media at
1: all uh i mean i never really used it too much to begin with that was the irony i've yeah. never tweeted in my life so for twitter to label me a hacker uh, I usually posted once a year on Facebook thanking people for my birthday wishes. I use Facebook more to remember people's birthdays than anything. Uh, I have stepped up my game in an effort to try to get my story out using the very platforms that tried to repress me. And there's still, like, I'm, I'm uh, shadow banned on YouTube. Uh, a lot of the viewership of my videos ceased about eight months ago. is amazing? You can tell that. Just, uh, I remember even under Thanksgiving, my mother's trying to send out a GoFundMe on, uh, on Facebook, and she pretty much had to remove my name before the post was allowed to go through. Unbelievable. So it's that that kind of behavior, which it's it's not blatant, but it's there. And if it's happening to me, who else is it happening to?
0: Yeah, now that's exactly the question. I mean, your 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 story is is the uh, the really the summary of what could happen to any one of us at any moment if. If these big tech companies just so choose that they've decided we don't like Joe Smith tomorrow, well, we see what they can do, because they did it to you. And I think that that is one of the greatest learning lessons. I think the other thing that really inspires people, you never have been broken by this. You've always stuck to your guns um, on on what doing, why you did it, why it was right to do it, and consequences be damned, you do it again. And I think that that, inspires a lot of people if you're a young person saying should I do right or wrong or should I just do the easy thing I think you've you've shown that sticking two or three years and persisting the right thing always turns out to be the best thing and so for that sir I'd like to I'd like to personally thank you I know you've been through a lot as many of us have who touched the Hunter Biden story but um you you inspire a lot of people by choosing to continue to uh, argue that doing the right thing is the only way to do stuff so thank you very much for what you do
1: Well, thank you very much for having me on the show and and, uh, continuing my story. Absolutely. Well, we're going to
0: get you back on soon. I have a funny feeling there's going to be more developments in the not-so-distant future. All Uh, right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to take a dive into all things Russia and Ukraine right after this. All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote – All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Really excited about this next conversation. We dig in every day on the Ukraine-Russia war, but we seldom get an expert with the sort of credentials and big-picture view that we have now. Joining us right now, Peter Brooks, Senior Research Fellow for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation at the Davis Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Very excited to have him here today, former naval commander. Uh, Peter, great to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be with you. You have been... Looking at this area of the world, Eastern Europe and Asia, for a yeah. long time, the, the two places where America has the greatest challenges with China and Russia, yeah. how do you look at the current war, the state we're at right, right now? Where does this Russian-Ukraine conflict end?
2: Well, you know, I'm always, uh, John, I'm reminded of the the, the uh, thoughtful quote of Neil Boers, a, a Danish physicist who said, prediction is hard, especially about the future. So... <laughs> As we look at this, uh, you know, bear that bear that in yeah, mind. We're that's a, a very words. dynamic state, right? We're very, you know, we're in a very dynamic situation, and, and the things could change by the time we finish this uh, this podcast today. But I I see the military. Uh, you know, I'm I'm amazed by the political and military resistance uh, that have been put forth by the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, and the Ukrainian people. Um, I see the the Russians have largely underperformed, in, in my estimate. The, to what we thought they might be able to might be able to do so we're in a bit of a stalemate right now um the fortunate side a fortunate part of that is that there are ongoing political negotiations uh and of course those decisions on the end to this conflict are up to both parties and certainly to the the ukrainian government and the ukrainian and people but we can be hopeful that we'll see an end to this unjust unprovoked attack on ukraine in the near future but if not Uh, this thing could slog on for quite some time. Uh, There are a number of different variables. Uh, We're hearing reports about uh, problems with Russian troop morale. Uh, We're hearing reports about problems with Russian uh, logistics. I mean, I I think it was Napoleon who said, John, that, you know, uh, amateurs study strategy and professionals study logistics (laughs) because you can't you can't run an army It's well. Napoleon kind of tried to cut him around that by having his army, you know, in a way he was able to live off the land and things. But it's true, you know, especially today with it's not just feeding the troops and, and things like that. It's, um, you know, obviously munitions. Yep. Uh, so there are there are reports out there. And once again, you know, you and I, I'm in Washington. I assume you're in Washington, perhaps that, yeah. uh, you know, we're far away from the front. Uh, but we're seeing reports and the Russians have not moved like they thought. We're, we've seen things that said that Putin thought this was he was going to have Kiev. Subjugated in three days. That's clearly not the case as we're in our in our third week. So the Russians are having challenges. And remember, you know the Russian army itself is only about three hundred thousand. You know they have a lot of people they can conscript and obviously reserve forces, but they're only about three hundred thousand, and they have a lot of that committed already. So I mean, they can uh, certainly wreak a lot more havoc and and violence and destruction um, using things like artillery, which the Russians have loved forever. In fact, Stalin called, Artillery, the uh, god of war, Bulgwaini, yeah. isn't that interesting? And um, and and he, they believe in it, and they use it as you know, uh, indiscriminately, right? Yeah, They're using again. it against military targets and civilian targets. Uh, and if I would have people look at what happened in the late 1990s in Chechnya with Grozny, I right. mean, they basically leveled the place, killed I think 250,000 people. Is that a number you've seen yes, as well? Yes, that's a number. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so they they lowered the they they leveled the place and rebuilt it. And killed two hundred and fifty thousand people. and you know tr- terrible, terrible uh, tragedy. We saw what they did in Syria. Uh, you know they' they're known to have bombed hospitals in support of the regime of, of Bashar al-Assad uh, during the civil war there. Um, so th- the Russians can certainly increase the brutality, and that's my real concern because of the civilian uh, because of the civilian population. but the other thing, the other variable here, John, is that the the weather's going to change. you know uh, we're right. you know they're going to be moving out of winter into the spring, and as we know, in, in places, maybe not in Washington, D.C., but perhaps in places like Colorado where they have lots of snow and, you know, things get wet and slippery and, what do they call it, the shoulder season out there because you finally see the shoulder of the road yep. after all the <laughs> snow that's falling. Well, you know, with the cold and other things, it's going to be much more difficult for that heavy armor of Russians to move around, nice. and they're they're moving themselves to the roads because um, they can't move through the fields, and that makes them an easier an easier target. And, of course, once again, uh, we're seeing an uptick in military supplies to the Ukrainian side, right? Uh, we've had you know, President Biden talked about increasing $800 million worth of military military aid. NATO countries will do the same. I think Secretary of Defense Austin is in Slovakia today. I think I heard him on the radio talking about he was there. And um, they have S-300s, which is a, a strong soviet air defense system that the ukrainians can operate so there's just I, what i'm trying to say is there's just so many variables out there uh in terms of that but i i think that the, i think we're all uh pleased and, and amazed at the like i said the political and military resiliency of the ukrainian government the military and its, and its people and um they have a right to their to the choose their governments and to maintain their territorial integrity and and sovereignty. So that's a, that's a long answer to a short question. Sorry. Yeah, about
0: but that. It, it, listen, you, you're right, and I hadn't thought of that. But you're right. The muddy season actually could be a real problem for the Russian yeah. strategy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Spring is. I mean, that was one of the reasons they thought that they wanted to do it earlier. I mean, I think the Olympics got in the way. Yeah. Quite yeah, frankly, the said, uh, don't do it then. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I think that there was. I mean, we've seen some reports. Once again, you know, nothing authoritative from President Xi or President Putin, but we've seen reports that he did that, and he certainly did not start the offensive till after the Olympics uh, ended. Um, and that that probably, you know, could sl- slow down. Once again, I think they're having other problems besides besides the weather. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things that I that I talked about and, you know, leadership, uh, you know, the capability of the Russian armed forces, a lot of them are conscripts. They're not professional soldiers like right. like we we're thankfully that we thankfully have. Um, so there, there's a lot of issues and in some ways. I don't want to say this now. Uh, But, um, you know, in some ways, the Russian military, uh, which Putin has really rebuilt. Now, I'm an old Soviet specialist going back to the Cold War. I was trained in Russian by the by the U.S. Navy. I spent a lot of time on this. And then I turned to Asia issues. And, you know, I served in the Bush Pentagon working on Asia in the mid 1990s because I didn't think Russia was going to be a problem. But their military went from this tremendous, you know, this Red Army and this great threat to to uh, Western Europe right. uh, to practically nothing. But Putin has spent a lot of time and money trying to refurbish it, uh, and it has not performed, um, yeah. I think, like they like they expected. First, first road test has been pretty bumpy, hasn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't want to call it a paper tiger, because obviously it's causing a tremendous amount of uh, destruction. But I think this will help them realize that they really they don't want to tangle with NATO, uh, because I think they, they, they may have made misperceived the capabilities of the Russian military, and i think they're seeing it um, in, a, in a, a very realistic sort of sort of way and i think this may deter them from you know testing nato because they realized that they were always concerned that nato was more capable and they would lose a conventional war against nato but now i think they should have very very strong concerns about that
0: yeah no i think it's a wake up call for the and, uh, for the russian people too uh, to uh, again we don't know how much of the <clears throat> true information gets back to them uh, inside the country but uh, yeah, the Russians may have to wonder: Has Putin been selling us a bad, uh, a bad bag of goods for a long time? Because um...
2: well, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing. I mean, it's a terrible thing, and the Russian people, you know, once again, you know, it's like uh, we have, you know, issues with certain governments, but not necessarily their people, right? Because in many cases, in these authoritarian countries, they, the the people are the victims of their own government, right? And it's not that we don't we dislike the Russian people; we don't like the Putin regime. <laughs> it's not the Russian people. Uh, that we have uh, that we have issues with, and you're right. They're they're not. They're being fed a steady diet of propaganda, um, and um, they they're probably learning more than we think they are. But the government's working very hard to feed them a diet of disinformation, uh, and we've seen some very brave souls who have who have stepped forward to try to prevent this. And if you think about the cultural ties, you know, ethnic and cultural and historical ties between uh, Ukraine and Russia. I mean, you know, they're brothers and sisters, essentially, yeah,
0: right? It's right? very much, and, a, it uh, feels like a civil and, war to them, doesn't
2: it? Yes, exactly. And that's horrible. I mean, that's, you know, war is horrible, right? You know, I'm a veteran, and I'm still going to say that. War is a yeah. horrible thing. And no, we should always be the last resort. But can you, imagine, can you imagine it if, you know, like a civil war, we all reminded of of that in our, own, in our own history here in the United States and how painful that must have been and is still painful to us today. Sure.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. You wrote, I thought, one of the most important articles very early on. In fact, the war hadn't even started yet when you wrote it. But I do think that um, it got a lot of attention. Russia's small nukes are a big problem. The possibility, you know, we always think about the strategic uh, missiles that we all have that, you know, can blow up cities and states. uh, But Russia has a 10 to 1 advantage over the United States in these tactical, uh, small-yield nuclear weapons that could still create yeah. great fear, fear and, and, and devastation. Yeah. Uh, are yeah. we in danger of seeing one of those being deployed in this conflict if we don't get a peace deal soon?
2: I hope not. Now, I'm going to say that the risk of the use of weapons of mass destruction by Russia is low, but it's not no. So in other words, we got low risk, but we don't have no risk. Uh, Russia could do something like this. Uh, and we can talk about chemical and biological later, because I know that was something that you were interested in as well. But, yeah, Russia has 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons. They're also called battlefield nuclear weapons. They're low-yield nuclear weapons. There's no real definition of them, other than they're smaller than the ones that we would might see launched to, to bust up cities uh, between uh, continents, you know, the intercontinental ballistic uh, missiles. So they could be tens of kilotons. They can be hundreds of kilotons. They, even these weapons can be variable. Um, and they can be found in things like depth charges. I don't know if the Russians still have them in their arsenal or in landmines, uh, in artillery shells and wow. rockets. I mean, they can be used so many different ways. And they're not constrained by any arms control agreements. Now, we have a big agreement with the Russians called the Neustry Arms Reduction Treaty or New Start. Where we've agreed to cap or limit our uh, arsenal of deployed deployed nuclear weapons. That doesn't include ones that are in reserve, but deployed nuclear weapons. And so we're equal there at about 1,550 deployed uh, nuclear weapons. But the tactical nuclear weapons have never been included, and the Russians refuse to include them, which is very very troubling. Um, and that was one of uh, you know our criticisms of, of Obama and New Start. Um, you know, it was uh, renewed, it was signed, and the same thing happened under the Biden administration was renewed, is that this is not included. So they have 2,000 of these, or we think. I mean, there's, that's what's in the public space. I don't, I'm sure the intelligence people hopefully know. But, you know, for us working outside of the government now, that's a number that we often use. And we have only 200. And we have 100 of them in Europe and 100 of them back in the United States. Um, And there's a concern that the Russians have this, they they believe they can fight a nuclear war. I mean, they can, you know, the countries come out and say, you know, like Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev said, you you know, a nuclear war should never be fought. Nuclear war weapons should never be used and a nuclear war should never be fought. But we don't believe that the Russians really believe that. That's right. Um, and they, they have this doctrine out there that's very troubling uh, that the government has shared with us from their own, their work, probably intelligence work and other diplomatic work that says the Russians might try to do what they call escalate to de-escalate. So say, for instance, the Russians, and, and this is in this paper that people can find at the Heritage website. Um, You know, the Russians, say they move into the Baltics, okay, or outside of Ukraine. We will go back to Ukraine and talk about that there as well if you want. But let me just give people an idea of what we're talking about. So they they move into the Baltics to try to take the Baltics back. Um, And NATO responds, right, because the Baltic states are part of NATO. Um, Russia starts to lose. And they say, okay, and they they blow up a tactical nuclear weapon, which would be a lower-yield weapon. They could do it over land. They could do it against a target. They could do it in the air, or they could do it over the ocean, where it may not have as much effect um, in terms of fallout, in terms of destruction, and things along that line. As a warning to say, "This is what might. This could get a lot worse unless you people stop." And then the, the NATO, the United States, and others would have to pause and think about what they're going to do, uh, because will Russia go further? Will they escalate further? And the idea here might be: say, if they took one of the Baltic states, they could say. They could, you know, sue for peace at that point. Um, and then it would be on the part of the political leaders to decide whether that's something we wanted to do or to continue the conventional and potentially nuclear uh, war that, that Russia has has started, which could lead to an all-out exchange between the United States and Russia. And think about that, right? <laughs> so this is, this is something that the Russians use to intimidate, uh, to scare. Um, I mean, we could see, like I said, I think the, the risk is low, but I'm not saying it's no risk. Uh, we could see something like that in ukraine especially if, if nato were to intervene and if they were to use this which would break what a 75 year uh, taboo right. on the use of these weapons um the um it, it could affect the political policies of those involved in this um in this thing now once again if you if you were to if you were to uh, explode and a, a tactical nuclear weapon which is i mean I don't, is there such a thing as a small nuclear weapon you know what i'm saying i yeah. mean in the sense that even the smallest now, ones cause right, right, damage, right, right? yeah, yeah you, know right. What, you know what i'm saying so i'm always cautious about calling them small but low right. yield weapon over ukraine i mean the fallout not only could it, it would it potentially affect ukraine and the, the territory that russia is trying to take over but it also because of prevailing winds and other things as we remember from chernobyl and things along that line it could blow into russia the fallout the radioactivity uh, could affect Russian troops. You know, so there's all sorts of things. So there's serious things to be considered here by the Russians uh, in terms of, of using those. But it's something we need, first of all, to think about, to understand their doctrine, um, and to understand that they might they might continue to escalate. And then eventually, I think this really needs to be something that needs, I don't know if we'll ever get back to the arms control table with the Russians after this, um, uh, to get to get the Russians to come clean on this and to, put them under uh, some sort of uh, arms control regime. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there was a missed opportunity in the Obama years to get these tacticals uh, declared and
2: rebalanced
0: because it, it is a 10 to 1 uh, d- a disadvantage that America finds itself in in this, uh, in this particular Right uh, now, now,
2: now, the Trump administration, John, tried to do some things and create some capabilities that were, so it wasn't so asymmetric. Right. And now Congress and the Biden administration is pushing back on some of that too. And that's something we need to consider because what we were doing is saying OK, if you guys are going to have these, we're going to have more capabilities. So you don't you can't get away with escalate to de-escalate. And this is something the Trump administration came forward with. And Biden and the Democratic Congress have pushed back on that um, since then with the new with the new administration in the White House, because they don't they don't tend to like nuclear weapons is as important as they are to our, uh, you know, to our security, especially in, in the era of great power competition. I mean, we're only talking about I'd love to come back and talk to you about Chinese nukes. I mean, I've written on this as well. And we, you know, last summer we found the Chinese were building all these ICBM silos that nobody seemed to know about. Well, I hope people inside the government, the intel people knew, but civilian researchers using commercial satellites were able to go look in the deserts of China and find that they were building, you know, hundreds of ICBM silos that, you know, researchers on the outside didn't know about. So we're, we're in the first time in our lives, well, that we're actually going to face two Peer nuclear competitors in Russia and China. China has fewer nuclear weapons, but a lot of people feel like they're in a race to, you know, parity or near parity sure. uh, with the United States and Russia. And they ref- and the and the Chinese refused to come and negotiate anything because they said, well, that's just going to make us inferior. That's what you're going to try to lock in here in terms of nuclear weapons. So this is a, you know, these are unique, uh, unique times. And I'm always reminded of the Chinese curse that say, may you live in interest- interesting times. And uh, interesting is, is obviously- meant in a loaded a word, a huh? More sinister way, <laughs> right, a loaded word. Yes. Obviously it's more sinister than we think of interesting in many cases. Yeah, no doubt.
0: I want to stay on Russia, Ukraine, and then I want to do pivot okay. uh, and end with China, because I think, uh, uh, again, that's still our most, our largest challenge in the future. Um, you wrote a, a very important column about uh, the, the bio labs. that We have, right. there are research bio labs in Ukraine. They're not, yep. they weren't designing weapons. They were peaceful right. bioweapons. Almost every country has to uh, look at bio uh, pathogens. Infectious because, diseases. Exactly. Infectious As diseases, the pandemic right? just proved to us, right? We, we want to have that expertise. Uh, but you right. you, you took a look at the, uh, what a lot of people miss about Russia. And I think it was such a great article the fact that Russia uses everything for propaganda and to justify maybe military action or targeting of civilians. Um, The bigger fear about these biology labs being falling into Russian hands is the possibility they could use it to justify further attacks, isn't that correct?
2: Yeah, well, here's, here's what we were thinking about there. There was intelligence, it appears, coming out of the government. And actually, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken mentioned this the other day. I thought this, you know, I wrote that column a week or two ago and I hadn't heard, heard much about it, but they're still talking about it. They're worried about, if you remember, even before the invasion in late February, about false flag operations. Uh, these are staged operations right. where you actually try to shift the blame to somebody else for something that you did. And so the Russians have been looking for pretext, John, um, to invade Ukraine. Remember, they said there was denazification, right. they said the leaders were drug addled. I mean, all sorts of things. Um, It's because they were looking for not only support at home, but support abroad for what they wanted to do. And so one of their things besides the denazification and, uh, and to save Ukraine from this, from the the Zelensky government, as they put it, um, was this idea that they were, that they had discovered U S Ukrainian offensive chem biological labs. Now there's a difference between offensive and defensive. Now defensive, you're allowed to have those things. I mean, we have places, we have the U.S. Army looks at things in case somebody is going to use a chemical weapon against us. We have to be able to defend ourselves. And there's infectious diseases as part of public health and, you know, things along, things along that line. I mean, going back, talking about COVID real quickly, you know, back during World War I, there was the Spanish flu. And it affected, it affected you know, troops overseas. Um, so, you know, if we had the capability, we would have wanted to prevent that because sick soldiers can't fight. So there's not only infection, and that's biological as opposed to chemical, but they said, you know, they had found chemical and biological weapons and that they were working to develop, to weaponize it, which means offensive. In other words, to be used against somebody for military purposes as opposed to defensive to protect yourself against it. It's like, you know, we have, we have gas masks and other things that we would use if we needed to. I mean, we saw this chemical weapons used in Syria, right, with chlorine gas oh, no and, and general industrial gas yeah, that was been bottles, able to... Yeah yes exactly right and they they also use some other chemical things as well more uh, intricate and complex but they use basic and of course in world war one right they opened up uh, you know chlorine gas if the wind was blowing right to send across the trenches so you know you have a right to defend yourself and so there is you know defensive research and you know the other thing is we're always worried about when people do this research is that are they doing it safely so it can't escape you know, so you want if you're working on a biological pathogen that, that, that perhaps naturally reproduce, you want to make sure that it can't escape. And so right. the U.S. government sometimes works with people that say, let us help you make your biological research labs safer so you don't have it, you know, leave the lab. It stays in the lab. Everybody stays safe. We don't have an outbreak of some sort of biological pathogen because it got out. So this is something that we do. We do. Yeah. So now. Um, they, you know, they come out and said this. And and it's looked at as a a pretext. In other words, they were worried they were going to perhaps use chemical. Biological is so difficult, John, because you can't really control it once it's released. So I see chemical as more likely. That they might, you know, say that um, the Ukrainians, with the help of the Americans, with the help of the uh, the NATO, used chemical weapons against Russian forces or used chemical weapons against Ukrainian civilians. Or use chemical weapons against ethnic Russians living in, you know, Ukraine's Donbass region, you know, that, that separatist region out there. And then they could say, well, we got to go on in and save these people. This is unacceptable. And so this would allow them to increase their offensive, increase, you know, the, the, uh, the hostility and violence. Remember, once again, I wrote this article two weeks ago. So, you know, things have gotten worse since then in terms of Russian uh, you know, I, I think we're I'm not a lawyer, but I think we're looking at war crimes even on part of the Russians, uh, you know, in, in Ukraine. And they hadn't got to that point when I wrote this when I wrote this article. But they would use this in a, a false flag operation blaming somebody else um, and they could stage it. I mean, you could do things like you could, you know, use. Uh, actors, you know, people laying around like they're dead and they've been gassed. Uh, you could put makeup on them to look like they've been exposed to a certain sort of a chemical. You could, you know, you could have get real cadavers, you know, from people who have died natural deaths and, and, and lay them around and say, look, this village was bombed with chemical weapons by the Ukrainian forces or the Americans or, you know, the uh, you know, some NATO forces or something like that in Ukraine. And this would give them a, a pretext um, to do it. And what's really interesting here is that this whole idea of U.S. and Ukraine working together is false. And then the the State Department came out and said that Russia is actually the one who has an active chemical and biological weapons programs. We don't. And and their belief is the Ukrainians don't. And they're in violation of international treaties, such as the Chemical Weapons Convention and the uh, Biological Weapons Convention. And and as you remember, John, not too long ago, the Russians used a Unique chemical weapon called Novichok, which in Russian kind of means the newcomer um, against uh, Sergei, uh, Alex Navalny, um, the political dissident, and Sergei Skripal, who's a a defected GRU officer, a Russian uh, intelligence military intelligence officer who defected. So, I mean, it's known that they've done this and it was been traced back to Russia. So it's really interesting. But the Russians are projecting, trying to project blame on others to advance their, to advance their interests. And that's what I was trying to, you know, trying to get at um, in that, in that uh, short 400 word column that it's once again, is available and a shameless self-promotion on the Heritage Foundation website.
0: Yeah, really important. It's a an extraordinary, uh, important article to read and um, <clears throat> check up. And I want to pivot just quick. We got a couple minutes. On yeah. China, um, you, you touched on this, the rapid uh, modernization of their nuclear, capabilities, seems to, they want to be on the same power as Russia with us. Um, Do we have the proper nuclear defense posture right now, or do we need to reinvent that in light of this changing dynamic with China and Russia?
2: Yeah, we need to review our entire nuclear structure. And myself and my colleague, uh, Patty Jane Geller, who does great work on nuclear stuff, especially our stuff, has called for that. Uh, we need I, i'm I'm saying we even need like a, you know a red team or a congressional commission or something to look at our structure because we, we're in we're in uncharted territory here with what we might have as a two uh, near or peer nuclear competitors in fact an air force research institute said based on what the chinese are doing with these new icbm silos and i wrote yeah. a couple of articles on this they can be seen at the daily signal they want to be short, strike, if people are interested they? well that's what that's the concern that's the concern. Are they moving from a deterrent to minimum deterrent, small 200 nuke sort of thing that if you fire at us, we're going to be able to hurt you too, to where they could do a first strike, and and the Air Force Research Institute said that based on what we're seeing and based on the ability to MIRV or put a number of warheads on a single uh, missile that the, the Chinese may have as many uh, land-based nuclear weapons as we have with our Minuteman III, which are, you know, as you know, out in the West in places like Wyoming and Colorado right. and the Dakotas. Um, and that would that would provide some sort of uh, parity. They've also sent their nuclear deterrent to sea. They have nuclear SSBN submarines, uh, not too many of them. They will have more. And they've also developed a, a, a land-based uh, 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 nuclear threat uh, with these uh, these bombers, so they really have become a triad, and I think they want a place at the nuclear table right next to the United States uh, and Russia uh, on a uh, on an equal on an equal basis. Amazing,
0: absolutely amazing, because none of this is seeping into the public consciousness here. And quite frankly, when you watch the Congress or even the Defense Department, I, I know there was that presentation last fall, but the idea that China would move from Uh, nuclear deterrence posture to nuclear offensive posture. Uh, It's just not in our discussion today. And yet all the evidence is sitting out there. That's why the work you do, Peter, is so important. You are on the leading edge and and, uh, really a siren for all of us of the things we should be looking to be ahead of, not behind on. And uh, we're really grateful for the time you spent with us today. Thanks for having me. We're going to have you on for sure again real soon. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the day.
1: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: All right, folks, welcome back. It is time to wrap up. What a great interview with John Paul MacIsaac. Just think of how much his life, his career, his reputation suffered for actually doing the right thing. He found a piece of evidence he thought had Evidence of possible legal violations, he turned it over to the FBI, and for that, he was pilloried for two years. Truth has ultimately been his best friend, because at the end of the day, he did the right thing, and his laptop has proven a lot of things to be right. And we're going to continue that conversation tonight on Just the News, Not Noise, my new TV show with Amanda Head on Real America's Voice. Congressman Jim Jordan's going to be joining us. Buck, your seatbelt. He is always a fun ride. We're going to get the latest reaction on The New York Times for that. And then As well, a little bit more discussion tonight about Russia and Ukraine and also Iran. we got Ali Safavi, one of the leading Iranian dissidents in the world, to talk about the dangers of the nuclear deal that's being discussed and evolved by the Biden administration with Tehran, with Russia and China at the table. That's going to be a great conversation as well. All right, before we go, I always like to throw out uh, one of the great offers that our many partners have for us. I'm an outdoorsman. I've got a cabin out in the Shenandoahs. I'm going up there this weekend, hopefully when I return for some travel, and I love I love outdoor gadgets. I love outdoor gear, whether it's for my camping, for my chainsaw, uh, for my hikes, for a weekend of survivalist training, whatever it is. I love my outdoor gadgets. I have them all around, and if you like outdoor gadgets as much as I do, you know what you do? Go to BattleBox.com, BattleBox.com, and check out their incredible incredible gear i just got a new box all sorts of amazing things a little stove you put a few twigs in there you can cook a whole dinner on it it's amazing uh, a flashlight unlike any flashlight i've ever had i keep it with me when i'm out in the field i love it i keep it with me in the camper when i go camping our friends at battle box and by the way that's spelled b-a-t-t-l-b-o-x b-a-t-t-l-b-o-x.com uh, they've set up a special website to take care of a very special offer if you sign up now for their incredible subscriptions, they are going to send you a $115 plus mystery box of goods. Oh my God, buckle up. There's going to be all sorts of cool gadgets to get you started on your great battle box adventure. How do you do it? You go to trybattlebox.com slash just news. Try b-a-t-t-l-b-o-x dot slash just news. You're going to get a free mystery box worth $115 just for signing up. Use that URL and uh, get your outdoor spring game on now. You know, we're about to get outdoors a lot more. The weather's getting better. Why not have a battle box box coming to your house every month with some incredible new gadgets and toys for the outdoors person in all of us. All right, that wraps it up. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, may God bless you and may God bless his extraordinary country that is the United States of America.